It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description in the link tree. This week's episode, brought to you by Kokichi from Discord, Titanic Conspiracies. This one was suggested by Kokichi on Discord and voted on by our Patreon subscribers. So thank you guys so much for helping us choose this one. This was a really fun one. Oh, and by the way, um, this is I'm solo this time, unfortunately. Uh, Agent ETA is he has a broken computer. Agent Kruger has a meltdown at work, and Agent Ether said that there's you know too many people died, and she doesn't want to do this one because it's a bummer. Now, once you get past all of the death and destruction and the horribleness of it, it's actually a really interesting case. So hopefully, it's not too depressing for everybody out there. But yeah, anyways, this one was. Uh, really interesting Titanic conspiracy. So that's what we're doing today. Well, let's get to it. There's quite a lot to look into with this one. And some of the conspiracies involve looking at, you know, ship components and schematics and things like that, but we don't necessarily need to get too scientific. So the basics are, you know, or essentially, I guess we'll talk about first the disaster itself. So the Titanic or the RMS Titanic and I had to Google this. I didn't know what RMS meant. At first, I thought maybe root mean square. You know, RMS root mean square could be. It's like there, there's. A, it's a math thing, but there are also like RMS compressors and stuff in the audio world. So that's what I thought of immediately. But I also thought, okay, what came to mind? What could this possibly stand for? So I thought maybe robot mom Sasquatch, uh, Reginald made shit, rice meatballs and spinach. Uh, restore mainframe system, but no, it's actually nothing nearly as exciting as any of that stuff. It's actually just Royal mail ship. <laughs> I looked it up. It's just a Royal mail ship. It means basically a ship with mail on it. So any ship that had mail on it could be called the RMS something or other. It, it's primary function was not a mail ship, obviously, but it did have a mail room on it. All right. So it was the largest ship or one of the largest ships of its day. The Olympic class ships actually had three built. This was the second one of three, but it was 882 feet long, 92 feet wide, and 104 feet tall, total feet. It had 24,360 tons of weight, 52,310 tons of displacement, and the deck was about 60 feet above the water, give or take. I saw some descriptions saying 70 feet, 60 feet, whichever. That's really far up there. Just think about being on top of a six-story building and looking down, and that's how far it was off the water for the deck. That's a big boat. I have been on a cruise ship before, which was also very large. I'm sure it was somewhere in this ballpark. I don't know how big it was exactly. I could probably look it up, but that's neither here nor there. Anyways, during its cruise from the from Europe to, I think it was going from Britain to New York. I should have looked that detail up, right? <laughs> that's kind of important. Anyways, the, the, uh, the ship was 
sailing and it was, uh, or steaming along, I should say it was a steamboat and it received several warnings of ice and changed direction to the South before the fatal accident. Oh yeah. Spoiler alerts. It hits an iceberg. <laughs> so it hit, hits an iceberg and eventually sinks on April 15th, 1912 in the North Atlantic ocean. So this was actually the maiden voyage of the ship. Or I was looking at, you know, can't we be inclusive here? What would be the male version of a maiden? I don't know. I looked it up. Apparently, it's like a bachelor, I guess. I don't. I, guess, I suppose that's the closest. So it was on its maiden or bachelor voyage. There were 200, or no, 200. There were 2,224 people on board, and about 1,500 of them perished in the event. At the time, it was the deadliest sinking of a ship, and to this day... It's still the deadliest peacetime sinking of a ship. And I looked up some of the other ones. And as far as I can tell, there was not a single ship that went down that killed this many people. A lot of them were like, oh, yeah, this this fleet was destroyed here or this fleet was destroyed there. But that's a whole fleet, not a single ship. So this might be the single deadliest maritime accident in the history of maritime accidents for a, for one ship, not a whole fleet. So this boat was operated by White Star Line, and they operated two other similar ships. There was the, I think it was the Britannic and the Olympic. So instead of the Titanic, the Britannic, get it? <laughs> it's like a Titanic Britain, I suppose. Uh, it was the pinnacle of luxury for the day, and it even had certain things like a radio telegraph room for sending messages while it was out there in the water. So you could still call home, communicate with your family. Um, I'm sure you'd have to pay for that. I don't know. Not everybody could do that, I'm sure. So it was also pretty technologically advanced for its time. I mean, the design and engineering were, I think, were truly impressive just looking at it. It was designed to take damage, and it was designed to be as unsinkable as possible, now, there were advertisements that said it's nearly unsinkable, but um, they, it didn't, they didn't, never said before it sank that it was unsinkable. That's sort of one of the myths that, that um, go along with the thing. But unfortunately, it took too much damage, and it did sink. There are limits to how big of a hole you can poke into something, even if it is designed to be unsinkable. There, you know, there's, just, there's only so much water you can put in the bottom of a ship before it sinks. Now, the Titanic got six total warnings of icebergs on the 14th at 2339 or 1139 p.m. A lookout spotted an iceberg straight ahead. Now, the collision or the, the conditions for the collision were, you know, perfectly bad or the worst possible conditions. The moon was not out, so they couldn't see very far. There were no lights other than the stars to illuminate the icebergs, and I suppose the lights on the ship, but I doubt those traveled very far. And also, the waters were really, really calm. If there had been waves, the lookouts probably would have seen them crashing on the iceberg a little sooner. So they didn't see it until it was almost too late. The Titanic tried to avoid it, but it was going too fast to turn in time. It was only going 22 knots, which doesn't sound like it's that fast, I guess, I, I guess knots are almost, they're not quite miles an hour, but they're pretty close. So you could say it's going 22 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour or something like somewhere in that ballpark, right? Doesn't seem like it's that fast, but for a ship that size to turn, 
you you can't just turn the wheel and make the ship turn. You have to call down to the engine room and tell them, okay, adjust this, adjust that, go ahead and turn the rudder. And I guess the rudder itself could take as much as 30 seconds to turn because it was powered by like a, a steam steering mechanism. We're talking about really big parts here and you can't just turn them easily. It takes a whole, it's a whole process to get this thing to maneuver. So they did is what they could. They called an all stop and tried to turn the ship out of the way. Now the center propeller couldn't be reversed. And some things I said, I read said they may have called like a reverse engines, but the center propeller couldn't do that. So they just shut it down. And when that shut that down, it limited the effectiveness of the main rudder because it didn't have water passing over it anymore from the propeller. So it made it harder to turn. And there is some speculation that if the first officer, well, I guess the first officer was in charge at the time, the captain had, had been asleep. He was, you know, taking a little nappy poo, I guess. But the first officer, William Murdoch, if he had maintained speed rather than calling an all stop or trying to reverse the engines, he would have had the the maneuverability to actually turn out of the way. And the ship might've avoided the iceberg altogether by only a few feet though. It would have been still would have been a really close call, but they might've avoided it just if that little difference had been made. How crazy is that to think what a difference that could have made? That's just, it's just really weird. All right. All right. Come on, Toby. My little cryptid wants up on my lap. All right. Come on, Toby. All right. Hopefully he doesn't make too much of a ruckus. <laughs> okay. Sorry for the interruption. Anyways, here we go. They did a maneuver called a port around where the front of the ship is swung around the iceberg and then the back is swung around after it. And it missed a direct, a direct collision, but an underwater protrusion scraped along the side for seven seconds or so. As it did, this chunks of ice fell from the iceberg and landed on the forward decks. The engines failed and the ship began to drift. The collision had damaged a strip on the side of the ship about 300 feet long, causing six openings of only about 12 square feet. And I looked at diagrams or little little uh, pictures of it, and it didn't look like the damage was like that bad, but I guess it was enough for water to come rushing into the lower areas of the ship. Now, I guess it, it didn't actually like tear chunks or holes out of the ship from what I read, but it caused the plates that were riveted together, it caused the rivets to snap and to separate the, the plate separated, letting water come in between the metal plates of the ship. So that was sort of interesting. I just assumed there's a big old gash torn in the thing, which let the water in right away, but that's not what happened. It, it sort of separated the plates and water came in slowly enough to where it didn't sink immediately. Now, there wasn't like a huge impact. Most people didn't report being thrown around or whatever. A few of them did. Some of them said, yeah, I got thrown out of my bed or, you know, I, I lost my footing or something. But others, they just said that they felt a little something or other. One passenger said it felt like the ship went over a thousand marbles. So, you know, like there's a, a rolling feeling or some kind of sensation, but it wasn't, you know, super crazy or anything. Now, a lot of the passengers weren't most, if not all of the passengers weren't really alarmed at all. They didn't even know that there had been an accident. The damage was all underwater, so they couldn't really see anything. And they didn't see that there was anything at all happening or wrong with the ship. Uh, the water came in pretty fast, though. Apparently, it was about seven tons of water every second. 
And that was 15 times faster than it could be pumped out. So it was just pouring right in. And I also read some speculation that there might have been damage to the bottom of the ship as well, based on where the water entered the ship and how quickly it came in. But I'm not sure that they were able to determine that to 100%, uh, maybe because of the way the ship was lying on the ocean floor. I'm not sure. The engineers had a tough job. The boilers apparently could have exploded at any minute because they were full of high-pressure steam coming into contact with the freezing water pouring in from the tears in the ship or the holes in the ship. Now, the engine people were ordered to reduce the fires and vent the boilers to make sure that the boilers didn't explode. And they did this, and this was actually probably part of what um, caused so much chaos on the deck, but we'll probably get to that in a little bit. Now, by the time they finished doing this, the engineers were actually waist deep in water and freezing water, but they did what they had to and, you know, good for them, I guess. Although a lot of those workers who were running the ship actually ended up perishing. So they gave their lives to make sure other people could have a chance to escape. Now, the bottom of the ship was divided into 16 sections and it was designed so that if one or two sections flooded, the ship would still be seaworthy and it wouldn't really matter that much. And in fact, as many as four to six sections could have been flooded at one time without sinking the ship, from what I read, depending on who you ask. Um, I, again, I'm not an engineer, so I can't vouch for that myself, but that's just what I read. So the watertight bulkheads separating these sections only went partway up the ship. So as the front sections filled with water, the ship dipped low enough for the water to pass over the torn sections over those bulkheads into other sections of the ship. And this is how the ship sank. Basically, um, you know, if there had just been slightly less damage and fewer sections had filled, probably it would have still floated and there wouldn't have been the massive death that we had just a, just an amazing, incredible string of bad luck is what this was. So the crew knew pretty much right away that the ship would sink and they started waking up passengers and ordering an evacuation. And the reason that they knew is when they went and inspected it, the guy who designed the ship was actually on board. So he took a look and assessed the damage and he predicted accurately that the ship would sink in about two hours. When they tried to wake people up, there was no shipwide speaker system or anything. So the stewards had to go door to door to wake people up. The first class passengers had way fewer people and more stewards per person. They had a more steward per person ratio because, you know, the rooms were really big and they had a much bigger budget to hire stewards to cater to those people. I forget the exact number, but the ticket price for the first class cabins for a one-way trip across the ocean would have been something like a hundred or $120,000 in today's money. That's a lot of cheddar. And if I paid that kind of money for a one-way passage, I would expect, you know, a pretty posh experience and you would expect to have stewards, you know, tending to your every need if you paid that kind of money. So they had a lot more manpower for the first class. Now, the second class and third class, they had a lot more passengers with probably fewer stewards and definitely had fewer stewards per passenger. So they didn't have quite as much time per passenger to go wake everybody up and get them out. You know, in the first class, they had stewards, you know, helping people get dressed, helping them, 
get their stuff out of the room and helping them uh, help to usher them personally. Whereas in the other classes, second and third classes, they just had to run, especially in the third class, they just had to run through knocking on doors, yelling, okay, come on aboard, come on aboard. They didn't tell people that the ship was sinking because they, I'm guessing they didn't want to cause a panic, but they did tell people to come aboard, to come up onto the top deck. Now, a lot of people, they thought it was a hoax or a gag or some kind of joke. They didn't even believe it. So they just stayed in their rooms. And keep in mind, it was freezing. The air was freezing about 30 degrees, give or take. So when they said, come up deck in the middle of the night, people said, no, I don't think so. We're just going to stay in our room where it's nice and warm, (laughs) you know? And just think about that. I mean, that seems reasonable if you're possibly even asleep and somebody who knocks on your door, they don't open the door. They don't stay to explain themselves. They just go knock, knock, go up deck. You know, so there's a problem with the ship, go up deck. Then they just move along. You'd probably think that it was some teenagers goofing off or something. You wouldn't really, you might not think that it was an actual emergency. So that's one reason why so many of the people, especially from second and third classes perished. Another possible contributor to what happened is, you know, as far as how chaotic it was on the deck, I mentioned earlier that they were releasing the steam from the boilers. Well, this was apparently so loud. The steam was coming out of the smokestacks. It was so loud that you couldn't hear anything on deck other than the steam. It was so loud that the crew tried to communicate using hand signals And if they wanted to speak, they would have to try to cup their hands over somebody else's ears and talk to them that way. But it was so loud, apparently, even that wasn't very effective, and it was still really hard to hear what anybody was saying. Now, the life rafts or the lifeboats, that's one of the major ideas is that, you know, there were not enough lifeboats for people to escape, and that's true. But the reason for that is, is that the ship wasn't really designed on purpose to evacuate everybody all at once on the lifeboats. The idea was that you would put some people on the lifeboats, they would go to a rescue ship, and then the lifeboats would come back for more people. And that's how it was designed on purpose. So this was not some kind of oversight. That was actually on purpose. But um, this, unfortunately, there were not any ships nearby to rescue them, not for a while anyways. There were There was a ship close by, but they didn't make it over there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But things were really chaotic on the deck. People could not communicate with each other. And when the evacuation was going on, a lot of the lifeboats were launched at half capacity, some even less capacity than half. Some of them weren't even launched at all. Now, the staff were mostly regular workers that you might see at a hotel, like kitchen staff, cleaning staff, service staff, you know, cooks, whatever you might, people you might expect to work at like a hotel. They were not experienced seamen or women. They were not, they didn't know what to do in an emergency. The training, there had been little to no training on what to do when loading lifeboats. And it wasn't just, okay, hop in the boat and go. They had to be lowered 60 or 70 feet to the water. And they had to be lowered evenly. If they were lowered unevenly, they might fall or you know, tip the people out of there. And there were some, when the lifeboats were being lowered, there were some very near accidents where one boat almost got lowered on another. Some, one of them, the people almost got dumped out. There was all sorts of chaos going on when they were trying to lower the boats themselves. Now, the boats, part of the reason why uh, they weren't at full capacity is because 
they were told women and children first. Um, and also, there didn't seem to be any imminent danger. You couldn't see the damage to the boat, you to the ship Titanic. You couldn't see sh- damage to the Titanic. So a lot of people, they're like, why are we getting on these lifeboats at all? I'll just stay here on the ship. It doesn't make sense why I would want to get on the boats. So they felt it was safer just to stay on the ship. For example, John Jacob Astor was quoted as saying, we're safer here than in that small little boat. And that was a prominent wealthy dude, I guess, of the time. I'm not super familiar with him, but he is a prominent figure, I guess. So the first lifeboat didn't embark until... 40, 0, 0, 0, or uh, twelve forty-five in the morning, with twenty-eight passengers out of a maximum of sixty-eight. Only twenty-eight out of sixty-eight. That's crazy. And again, I think a lot of the factors are the confusion with loading only women and children, and the fact that people didn't understand the full weight of the emergency. So the steam was screaming out of the stacks. You couldn't even communicate to people what was going on. Nobody could hear each other. People were playing football or whatever on the deck with the ice that had fallen on there, and nobody knew it was happening. And when the captain instructed his first mates or his second officers um, to load the things, he told them women and children earth, earth, uh, women and children first by cupping his hands over their ears. Second officer light roller in charge of loading the port side of the ship interpreted this as meaning only women and children were allowed on the boats not women and children first and then load men as spots were available. So he didn't allow any men on any of the ship on any of the uh, rescue boats on that side of the ship. Only one man was actually allowed to board on that side. When light roller realized that one of the boats didn't have a crew major Arthur Godfrey, uh, Arthur Godfrey Petuin of the Royal Canadian Yacht Club volunteered to help and climbed down a rope as the boat was being lowered. And that's the only man on that side of the Titanic that got off. The other side had a few more, but not many. Uh, you could look up the statistics, but as far as survivability goes, it was not good to be a man and it was not good to be in the third or second classes. You know, if you were in the first classes, far more likely to survive. But anyways, the Titanic had a radio on board, as I mentioned earlier, and she did radio for help. The engineers stayed below decks, sacrificing their lives to keep the power on the ship as long as possible to get the ship or to get the signal off of the ship. And it was picked up by nearby ships. Now, the closest ship was the RMS Carpathia that picked up the signal anyways, and that was 58 miles away. It was a slower ship and took four hours to reach the area. The SS Californian was much closer, but in a stroke of incredibly bad luck, at 23.30, 10 minutes before the Titanic struck the iceberg, the Californian's only radio operator shut it down for the night and went to bed. 10 minutes. This ship was supposedly about 10 to 12 miles away, and it missed the radio signal by 10 minutes. If it had gotten that, like, let's say if the radio officer had had a slight bit of insomnia, and if they had gotten that signal, then there would have been very little, if any, loss of life. Just what this, this whole thing from front to back is just an incredible, incredible series of bad luck. It's just unbelievable how unlucky this ship was. It just, I can see why there, it fueled some conspiracy theories. 
it's hard to believe that there's this much bad luck. Now, on the Californian, a second officer named Herbert Stone witnessed five white rockets explode over the ship in the distance. He reported this to Captain Lord, who said, kind of like, meh, whatever, don't worry about it. Now, there, so this, in a, there's so many things in this case where you can go into a lot of detail. Some people say that the rockets were actually cover, colored red, white, and blue, not just white. There's a lot of different varying descriptions of this and descriptions of um, what Captain Lord did and how the crew reacted and all that stuff. Uh, I don't know for sure exactly what happened, but we do know that probably people on the Californian saw the rockets and reported them to Captain Lord, who, for whatever reason, didn't take them all that seriously and didn't go over to investigate. Now, part of this might be that the Californian was actually stuck in the ice field themselves and might have been surrounded by ice and had stopped moving and were waiting for daylight so that they could successfully maneuver the ice field without crashing into an iceberg themselves. So that's part of the reason maybe he wasn't willing to risk it. But a lot of people also blame him for inaction, saying that if he had actually gone over to the Titanic and you know not ignored these signals, it could have gone differently. Um, there's a lot of cons- there's a lot of conspiracies and speculations just with the Californian and other ships that may have been in the area, but we do know through witness testimonies that probably the Californian and the Titanic did see each other and may have even communicated with each other with Morse code, but they may not have been able to see those communications because at about 10 miles from what I can find out anyways, at 10 miles, they were probably on the horizon from each other or they're almost at the horizon. And it would have been very difficult to see each other or communicate with lights because the Morse code communication back then would have been done with, with lights magnified light, sort of like a lighthouse, uh, uses a lens to magnify it. And the Titanic would probably have been using an electric light bulb, or I mean, it definitely was. I mean, I I read about it. And the Californian might have been using like a kerosene lamp that was magnified. So they may not have been able to visually communicate at that distance. Now, if, if the, again, if the California had gotten there, if only, right, it just, it's kind of a bummer. But uh, some passengers, let's get back to the Titanic now. Some passengers eventually resign themselves to their fate. Uh, Ida Strauss and is the wife of Isidore Strauss. Um, they both dressed up in their nice clothes and they refused. She refused to leave her husband. She could have gotten a spot on the lifeboats, but she said, we have been living together for many years where you go, I go. So they sat down in some deck chairs and waited for the end. And I like to think that they were drinking gin fizzies on the way down, you know? (laughs) Um, Another rich guy, uh, Benjamin Guggenheim, these are some pretty prominent fellas back in their day. You know, your Jeff Bezos of the time, I suppose you could say. He took off his life vest, changed into his formal wear and top hat, and said he wanted to go down like a gentleman. So the ship slowly flooded and sank completely two hours and 40 minutes after hitting the iceberg and finally went under at around 2.20 a.m. The radio operators sent messages as long as they could, almost until the very end. Now, as I said earlier, the air temperature was freezing, and the water was below freezing. It was about 28 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 2 Celsius. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that's possible without it being an ice cube. Maybe the salt in the water or something, I'm guessing. 
the conditions, you know. <laughs> but hundreds of people who hadn't made it onto the lifeboats were floating in the water, and as the ship fell to the ocean floor, pieces of buoyant debris rocketed to the surface, possibly injuring or killing some of the survivors. Think about if you've ever been in a swimming pool with something that floats and you you know push it down to the bottom and it just shoom, shoots right up. Think about that, but with objects weighing hundreds of pounds, you know? So those were rocketing up all over the place. I can't imagine that that didn't hurt some, that had to have hurt some people, you know? So some of the people definitely were injured by that and not just the cold water, but um, that was not entirely a bad thing because some people were able to use the debris to get out of the water. Now, most of the people in the water died from cardiac arrest, drowning, or cold shock within 15 minutes. This is, they didn't necessarily die from hypothermia. From what I read, none of them died from hypothermia because it would take way too long. What they died from was like a shock to the system, which happens when you're suddenly immersed in very, very cold water. Um, Only 13 people were helped from the water into the lifeboats. There was room for about 500 more people, but for one reason or another, they didn't do that. They didn't seek for survivors. There could be several reasons for this. It might not just be, you know, oh, they were evil or only cared about themselves. Um, I think it was really dark out, so they couldn't see the people and they couldn't find them. I hope that's the reason at least. And it could also be that they were afraid of going near where the ship was sinking and they were they saw perhaps these items rocketing up and they saw this ship sinking and they didn't want to be caught up when the ship went down all the way. It probably caused quite a disturbance, so maybe they were afraid of that. I don't know. It's strange that only 13 people were helped out of the water, but I wasn't there, so I can't really say why that is. Now, the lifeboat passengers could actually hear people in the water. Jack Thayer said it sounded like locusts on a summer night. George Reams said it was a dismal moaning sound, which I won't ever forget. It came from those poor people who were floating around calling for help. It was horrifying, mysterious, supernatural. And that's chilling just to think about all those people in the water screaming for help or dying or drowning or whatever they were doing. It's just awful to think about. So let's move on. (laughs) The noise faded over about 20 minutes as the people in the water died out one by one. And the last person apparently was heard about an hour after the boat sank. So I guess some people lasted a long time. The remaining survivors were finally rescued about at about 4 a.m. on the 15th by the RMS Carpathia. Now, it had come at full speed itself, risking a collision with icebergs and avoiding several along the way to get to the survivors. They got there as fast as they could, so... They're kind of the heroes of the day. They definitely risked their own lives to try to save those, those few people from the Titanic that were, they were able to save. So let's get into some of the stuff now. That's the basic events. I know it took quite a while, but you kind of have to set the scene before we can talk about all of the, uh, the conspiracies and whatnot. So first off, one of the most well-known legends is the captain went down with the ship. So actually, it appears that he did stay on the ship at, until the very last moment, some witnesses said they thought they saw some somebody di- uh, diving away from the bridge as the ship was sinking, and it might have been the captain, but they're not entirely sure. So he definitely perished, though he didn't he did not make it. 
The band did play as the ship went down. They played some dance music and comic songs and some happy stuff. There's one, a particular hymn that, uh, a sad sounding hymn that people say it's part of the legend, but witnesses said they didn't play that. And other people said there's no way they would have played that because it would have caused a panic. You know, it's sort of like a funeral song. So they played happy music to try to calm people down as the ship went down. Um, at some point they did abandon their instruments, so they didn't go down playing, <laughs> but they did play as the ship went down. Now I did run across one really bizarre fact. Stewardess Violet Jessup survived the sinking of the Titanic and also survived the sinking of the Britannic, the newest of the three Olympic class ships. It was serving as a hospital ship during World War One, as and was sunk in November 1916. How crazy is that? She survived both sinkings, the sinkings of both ships. That that is insane. But hey, she survived them though. <laughs> and after on the going on the Titanic, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near the water. But apparently, she wasn't uh, as cowardly as I would be, and she went to work on that hospital ship. All right. So there's a couple of conspiracy theories that kind of went around. I mean, there's actually a whole lot of them. We won't have time to get to all of them, but first up, let's talk about the captain. Now the rumor goes, or the conspiracy, I guess it's not really a conspiracy, but the legend, I should say, the legend says when the captain realized the full extent of the situation, you know, it dawned on him and he knew that not only would he probably die as he stayed on the ship to help people evacuate, not only was he going to die, but actually a lot of people were going to die with him. When he realized this, he went into some sort of trance or state of shock, and he left the ship in a leaderless state of chaos. But that's actually not true. Surviving witnesses say that he was calm and in charge. He personally went himself below decks to assess the damage and, and to help with certain evacuation duties. He ordered the lifeboats to be prepared before he knew for a fact that the ship was sinking, possibly starting the process earlier than it would have been and saving more lives than were. So he, he, got, he was in charge and he was on top of things. So that one is probably not true. All right, now here's the second conspiracy I have. Now this is the one I'm sure everybody is wondering about, what everybody wants to know. <laughs> Jack did, did Jack have to die or did he not have to die now in the Titanic movie <laughs> Rose sort of murders Jack, right? That's the idea. According to the internet, Rose is a door hogging monster. That's a quote I found somewhere, probably read it. I don't know. <laughs> now they actually tested this one on Mythbusters, and they determined that yes, Jack could have actually survived, but they would have had to strap Rose's, life vest underneath of the piece of door or whatever it was that they were floating on. Now, some people still like to think that he couldn't. So the debate rages on and you can go find arguments, <laughs> endless arguments about, you know, the density of the door and how much weight it could carry and how much Jack and Rose both weighed. And it, the arguments go on and on. And there is actually some really good arguments at, both in favor and against. So it's actually not 100 percent decided whether or not he could have survived despite the Mythbusters saying that he could have survived. Um, <laughs> you know, you would have to know exactly what that wood was, how big it was, what it was made out of, you know, how thick it was, 
and that kind of thing. You know, what kind of wood would be used on that part of whatever that part of the ship was. Um, I, I think that it's possible myself. Uh, one idea says that they could both sit on it, but it would be in the water a little bit. So they would be partially submerged. But if they kept their torsos out of the water, they would have been fine. You know, if they kept their core body heat out of the water, they would have survived. They would just been really, really cold. But of course, these characters in this movie are not doctors. They would not have known the science behind that. So there is no way for them to know that. So it's plausible that they wouldn't have done that anyways. But um, there's another one that they could have taken turns on the raft, right? But again, this is... I see this idea as being not that plausible because people were dying like really fast in this water and anybody going in the water would have definitely risked death. So of course, Jack being the heroic hero that he was would have definitely not allowed this. He would not have allowed Rose to take turns in the water. So we could rule that one out as well. So could he have survived? Could Jack have survived at all? Um, I don't know, given the panic of the situation and the uncertainty of being rescued and all that stuff, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that Jack's death was plausible, like that he would not have survived. And, you know, that piece of debris was really wobbly. And given that, again, the nature of that character and who he was, I think that his death is not really out of the re- out of the realm of possibility. I think it's very plausible that he would have died. And I don't think that... Uh, it doesn't it seems pretty shaky that he could have survived. I mean, it could have happened, yes, but it seems pretty shaky. Now, even though uh, Cameron, the director uh, Cameron, <laughs> James Cameron, uh, says that the death of Jack was based on telling a story rather than trying to be realistic, in other words, he said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of, look, Jack was gonna die anyways. That's how the story had to end. That was the story arc. That's how that character's story ends in the movie he dies so one way or another he was gonna go but hilarious to me this i find this absolutely hilarious 25 years after the movie um he revisited the scenario in a documentary for the national geographic called titanic 25 years later with james cameron um he did an experiment to test it again (laughs) and i find this hilarious because James Cameron came out and said, look guys, it was just part of the script. He was going to die anyways. It doesn't matter if he could have been on there, but I just imagine poor James Cameron having to constantly deal with the, I, he's, I just picture him being at comic con signing autographs or whatever it is he goes to signing autographs for fans and the fan telling them, dude, Jack didn't have to die. Why did you kill Jack? He didn't have to die. <laughs> It is. He's probably still dealing with it today. As we speak, somebody is bothering him on Twitter or wherever he's out eating with his family at a restaurant or whatever. Somebody's probably giving him shit about Jack dying (laughs) in the Titanic movie, you know? Um, So they redid the experiment and this time around, they determined that, uh, that he would have died (laughs) again, you know, but uh, I don't believe this experiment because He's totally biased. Of course, he's going to come up with that conclusion from the experiment, right? <laughs> but anyways, um, I, I guess it's really cool that James Cameron went through this much effort for the fans to test this again. And he did like a really elaborate test too. 
anybody unfamiliar with James Cameron, I'm not, I love his movies. His movies are all really great. Titanic, it's a romance, so it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I guess he's like really detail oriented. And there are a lot of details in the Titanic movie that are very, very accurate. Uh, This is a little bit beyond this episode, so I don't want to go on a point-by-point discussion of where he got it right and where he got it wrong. He did get some things wrong. Some things were embellished for the sake of the drama of the movie, but mostly it's very, very accurate to what we had, the knowledge that we had at least when the movie was made. So that's, you know, if you go watch the movie, they're trying to reproduce the Titanic and the action as much as they possibly could. So props to James Cameron, you know, after reading about this stuff, in hindsight, I realized just how good that movie was as far as its accuracy of depicting the events. So props to him. And again, thanks to him for doing this fan service of testing this again. (laughs) So anyways, enough on that one. Uh, Probably Jack would have died no matter what. Okay, so there's that. There's my opinion on that one, even though there are ways he could have survived. So the next conspiracy we have here, conspiracy number three, in the movie, the third class passengers were locked underneath. There were gates that had been padlocked in to keep them from coming to the deck. So the conspiracy is that these people were basically murdered on purpose so that they wouldn't take up room or perhaps swarm the lifeboats. Now, this has merit because very few third-class passengers survived. There are some there are a lot of factors to this. Okay. It's not as simple as saying they were locked underneath the boat. They had a lot of trouble making their way up to the deck. The lower decks were described as sort of like a tight cramped maze, like layout of the corridors. So if they were in a panic, they might've had a lot of trouble finding their way out to the deck potentially. Now there were definitely gates separating them from the upper decks but this was actually a requirement of USA immigration laws. So I guess the lower decks weren't necessarily allowed or third class wasn't necessarily allowed to mingle freely with the second and third class areas. So that's another kind of factor. But um, so I guess a lot, you know, a lot of these people are immigrants that didn't get, they, they got processed once they got to America. Um, the first and second class passengers would have disembarked on the piers on Manhattan Island, but the third class passengers would have gone to Ellis Island for health and disease screening, I guess. They would just, I guess, check temperatures and make sure they're not bringing the plague with them, I suppose. But unfortunately, there does seem to be evidence that they were trapped underneath. Some of the gates were locked and guarded by crew members, and we know this because of surviving people who testified to the fact Irish survivor Margaret Murphy wrote, Before all the steerage passengers had even a chance of their lives, the Titanic's sailors fastened the doors and companionways leading up from the third-class section. A crowd of men was trying to get up to a higher deck and were fighting the sailors, all striking and scuffling and swearing. Women and some children were there praying and crying. Then the sailors fastened down the hatchways leading to the third-class section, They said they wanted to keep the air down there so the vessel could stay up longer. It meant all hope was gone for those still down there. Uh, That's pretty chilling to read. So, I mean, it does appear that this really did happen. That's crazy. That's, I just can't, I can't imagine. I just can't even imagine. 
but there were there were some other factors as well that led to the third class passengers not doing as well as the first class passengers. So the third class passengers were the farthest from the lifeboats. And even if they hadn't been locked down below, they would have had the farthest path to get there. Um, Also, many of the third class passengers didn't even speak English. So when they did the evacuation, they might not have had a common language. So they weren't able to understand what they were even being told. Most of the third class passengers that survived spoke English. So the language barrier definitely seemed to be a factor. Most of the third class survivors were English speaking Irish immigrants. Um, It's possible the other ones had no idea what was even going on until it was too late. A lot of them didn't even try to evacuate. Uh, There were, there were a group that just groups would just gather their belongings and wait for somebody to come and tell them what to do. Others congregated and prayed to God for help in groups. So it appeared that uh, some third, while some third class passengers were locked in and essentially murdered, some were not though. Third class steward John Edward Hart made three trips into the depths of the ship to bring people out. So he was actually bringing them out. He was not locking. So it seems like it was a totally chaotic situation where some people were ordered, okay, lock them underneath. And we don't know who gave that order. At least I couldn't find that out. Maybe it was done independently. I don't know. But maybe it was the captain. Anyways, whatever the case, some people were apparently locked underneath, but some people were not. Some people were rescued. It was very chaotic, and there appears to be very little direction overall, at least in this particular case. Uh, But that one was kind of a bummer. That was the most depressing one, because it appears that it did happen, at least in some parts of the ship. All right, on to conspiracy number four. This one, okay, here's where it starts to be less depressing, I hope, (laughs) because some of these are kind of depressing. All right, number four, the insurance scam. You knew I was going to get to it. I had to get to it if we're going to be talking about conspiracies. This is the big one, the one that everybody talks about. Ah, All right, excuse me, taking a sip of my beer there. Got some Pliny the Elder, not going to brag or anything, but it's pretty good. Anyways, so insurance scam. White Star Line was owned, I guess, by J.P. Morgan. Now, this should send off some warning bells as he has been involved in many a conspiracy. But this particular conspiracy seems to be from a book or two books by a man named Robin Gardner. The one that's most prominent or has sold the most copies is a book called Titanic, The Ship That Never Sank. Now, the idea is that one of three nearly identical ships was swapped out with one of her sister ships. The Titanic was swapped for the Olympic. The Olympic had previously had an accidental collision with the military ship HMS Hawk. This caused serious damage to the Olympic. Repairing it would cost more than just scrapping the ship. So they swapped out the parts on the ship and made it look like it had been repaired well enough. Um, I guess the part of the reason for this is that the insurance company determined that the accident was the Olympics fault and declined to cover it. And yeah, just a heads up, if you're covering a ship that I think I read somewhere, it costs $17 million or something, which in today's money is like all of the money. (laughs) If you insure it for that much, don't expect the insurance policy to pay out. I would just say that much, right? (laughs) So yeah. Anyways, they refused to pay on the policy. So the as the story goes, they swapped out the 
different parts that identified one ship or the other to the other, and they sank it. So White Star Line was apparently in financial trouble and needed something to get them out. And this is why they would have the motive to do this. Also, um, they intentionally sent the ship through the ice field at full speed to get them to sink because they knew if they went through that ice field that they would crash. Now, apparently, the captain was encouraged to go full speed to arrive early in New York and thus cause a stir. So if they got there a couple days early, it would cause a sensation and everybody would be very excited about how fast the ship made the trip. This appears to be true, or there appears to be evidence that they, the captain was encouraged to go quickly. So as any good conspiracy theory goes, there seems to be at least some hints of truth in here. Now, the Olympic went on to serve for decades after the Titanic sank, something that would not be possible if the ship was compromised. The Californian, remember we talked about the Californian, which was very close by, only about 10 miles away, it was in the area to pick up the survivors, but it somehow got off course and wasn't close enough and not in the right place to find the Titanic. Now, as the story goes, the Californian didn't really have any reason to be there. It had no cargo, no passengers, nothing. It was just sort of hanging out in the area. Now, ships don't just hang out in areas like this for no reason. They're doing something because these ships are very expensive to operate. They're either transporting something or people or sightseeing or whaling or fishing or something. They're always doing something. And they're not just in the area with an, with an empty cargo hold. So that's part of the conspiracy. Now, there were some last-minute cancellations as well. This part's true. J.P. Morgan was supposed to be on the Titanic, but canceled at the last minute. There are various stories. For example, some people say he was sick, and some people say that that's been debunked, and he was not actually sick. Other people say he was hanging out with his mistress, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Somebody else, or not else, but another theory is that, uh, I guess, he was in France, and there was a new law in France that was passed that said, we're no longer allowing people to export artwork out of the country, and this is going to go into effect at such and such a date. So he was in Europe, trying. he stayed, stayed behind to try to secure some artwork or some collectibles, or who knows what. That's another possible, but whatever. I anyways... The fact is that J.P. Morgan did cancel his trip last minute, and that is kind of susp suspicious. I mean, I have to admit, right? That is suspicious. He wasn't the only rich, prominent dude to cancel at the last minute, but he was definitely the most prominent rich dude to cancel at the last minute. Anyways, there are a lot of problems with the insurance theory, however. The ship was underinsured by $2.5 million, which is about $77 million today. So by syncing it with their current insurance policy, they would actually have lost money, potentially. Now, you could argue that if the Olympic was already basically toast anyways, they're not really losing $77 million. I Again, like I said, I think the total cost of the ship was something like $17 million back then. So they're still getting $15 million, right? Which is a lot of money. So it's not a total loss. So this one doesn't necessarily disprove it. But another problem with this theory is that the ships were not identical, but very, very similar. 
Certain rooms were in different places. For example, the radio room or the Marconi rooms were not in the same place on both ships. We have actual photos of the wreckage that show the radio room where it's supposed to be on the Titanic. So we know for a fact that that's the Titanic. I suppose they could have rearranged things on the Olympic to put the room in that place, but that would have taken quite, quite a Titanic effort. You know, pun intended, I guess. (laughs) Ha ha. All right, I'll stop there with the puns. I apologize. I apologize for that. That was horrible. (laughs) Anyways, so I suppose it is theoretically possible to move things around, but it would have taken quite an effort to do so. There are a lot of differences between the two ships. Everything from vent holes, windows, portholes, room placements. The differences are probably pretty subtle at a glance, and probably you wouldn't notice them without paying attention. But when you're talking about actual evidence, it's pretty clear that the ships were not switched based on that alone. You can look at, okay, the Titanic was designed slightly differently, and this is definitely pictures of the Titanic. We know that for a fact, you know, from the pictures from the ocean floor. Now, it would be difficult to keep all of the ship workers silent about the ship conversion if they had converted one from the other. It would have taken a lot of work. Maybe not impossible, but very different, very, very difficult. Now, another thing I found was that Gardner admits in his first book on the topic that it's all made up, apparently. I didn't see that, I didn't, couldn't verify this myself because I found it very, very late in the day and I couldn't look, I didn't have time to look this up. But apparently, in the first book he wrote on the topic, he just straight up says, Yeah, by the way, this is all made up. Or, or maybe his co author does, I don't know. <laughs> but if that's true, then uh, yeah. But I, again, I didn't have time to verify that myself. So if, uh, if this is made up, it's basically just, I mean, the evidence itself seems like just speculation and cherry picking facts. And some of the facts appear to have been completely made up by the author. For example, the idea that the Olympic was totally compromised appears to be an invention. In reality, the ship was probably fine and it was repaired before it went back out to sea. Now, I like a good conspiracy as much as the next guy, but unfortunately, this one has just too many holes in it to be believable under scrutiny. There's a lot more to this one. Like, I could easily do a whole episode or two just on this conspiracy. You can get really, really into the weeds, but at the end of the day, I didn't want to spend any more time on it because it does appear to be, unfortunately, completely fake. This is a really fun story. I love the story behind this one, but... It, the evidence just doesn't stack up. It's I looked and I had a lot of trouble finding hard evidence to support this theory. Everything we have comes from a book written by an author trying to sell that book. And it's not really that reliable. I mean, we have a single source. Everybody else that's a source, whether they're an engineer or somebody who's just, you know, a hobbyist who has spent their life studying the Titanic, all spectrums of people have disputed many of the facts of this conspiracy theory, and it doesn't really seem to hold any water at all. All right, so on to the next one. Conspiracy theory or item number five, the Federal Reserve. The idea is that there were three super rich dudes who were opposed to the creation of the Federal Reserve on board the ship. John Astor, Isidore Strauss, and Benjamin Guggenheim. Less than a year later, After the ship sank, the Federal Reserve was created. 
We actually have a whole episode on the creation of the Federal Reserve, if you are more interested in that. There actually was a conspiracy to to create the Federal Reserve. 100% there was a conspiracy, but did it involve the Titanic? Well, let's see. Um, There's not really a a lot more to this conspiracy than that. It's just those three people who opposed it, the creation of the Federal Reserve, died in the sinking. So... I guess you. there are some other things tied up in this, like they had a submarine shoot it and it wasn't really an iceberg and who knows what other kind of wild stuff. But uh, it's just kind of speculation. There's not isn't really any hard evidence to support this one, unfortunately. Um, I definitely wouldn't put it past the people involved in the creation of the Federal Reserve to do something like this. They had no problem whatsoever with killing people to make money. Again, see the episode on the Federal Reserve that we did previously. These were some pretty bad, evil, horrible people, so they would have definitely killed some people to make money. That's not that's not out of the question. We just don't have any evidence for it in this case. Um, and there is there is some evidence to support the contrary. For instance, there is no if assuming they just said, okay, go here and go fast, hoping they would hit an iceberg. There's no guarantee they were going to actually hit an iceberg. So it's sort of flimsy, a flimsy way to make sure the ship sinks. There are better ways of doing it. For example, you know, making sure that there's an accidental explosion on board or something like that, right? Uh, And they would have had to also, the captain would have kind of had to be in on this one. He would have basically been committing suicide and mass murder. (laughs) So. I don't know. It doesn't seem that plausible to me. Although you could say that they told the captain that he would be rescued. But again, if there's going to be rescuing, then they would have also rescued the other people. I don't know. It just, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This one, there's no evidence to support it. And I don't know. And also there does seem to be no historical evidence that these three particular individuals actually opposed the creation of the federal reserve in the first place. We don't know for a fact that they did. And there is some evidence that Strauss actually supported the Federal Reserve. So this one, again, is unfortunately full of holes. Uh, Sorry, I said I would stop doing that, but I lied. Ha! But, uh, I mean, it's a fun idea, I guess, but it's there's absolutely nothing to support it. You know, there's no evidence whatsoever. All right. Now, next up, I had the fact or idea that the ship was considered unsinkable, but it wasn't referred to being unsinkable until after the fact. Before the fact, in certain advertising things, it was considered to be, or they advertised it as being as unsinkable as possible. So it's kind of in the ballpark, but they didn't straight up say it's unsinkable. And just think that, uh, just think of like, I don't know, think of an example where you're, you, you have a car advertisement And it says in the advertisement, designed to be practically indestructible. You're going to understand that that car is not indestructible, right? A ship can sink. Any ship can sink. I don't think anybody in their right mind thought that this thing was really unsinkable. That's sort of a myth that kind of surrounds the whole thing, but it's sort of not true that they they never said it was unsinkable. All right, next up, number seven. A first passenger, a first class passenger named W.T. Stead had foreseen the incident. He wrote two stories, sort of like, you know, in a Nostradamus sort of a thing and predict, predicted the accident. 
One of them was called How the Mail Steamer Went Down in Mid-Atlantic by a Survivor. And this one's about two ships that collide and lots of people that die because there aren't enough lifeboats. The second one was From the Old World to the New. And this one is about a white star line vessel named Majestic that rescues survivors of another ship that had collided with an iceberg. So there are some similarities there. And it's kind of like, well, it kind of seems like maybe, I, I mean, I'm not totally against the idea of some sort of psychic phenomenon or some sort of some way that his mind could have known this ahead of time, even subconsciously. I don't know. It's not specific enough for me to say, yes, that's what happened, but it is still pretty interesting. There are a few other literary works that supposedly predicted the sinking of the Titanic. This one is the most interesting to me. It's The Wreck of the Titan by Morgan Robertson. This is about a British passenger liner called the Titan, which was supposed to be unsinkable. It didn't have enough lifeboats. It hits an iceberg in the story, and almost everybody dies. Now, that one is pretty weird, right? It's You have a story that's basically about what happened to the Titanic. It's This guy predicted it. That's, I'm convinced. This guy predicted the sinking of the Titanic somehow. That is just really, really weird. Does it mean anything? Is it just a coincidence? I don't know. I mean, again, maybe there is some sort of subconscious psyche that people, when there's a mass disaster like this, somehow it's like, you know, I guess a fluctuation in the force that can be detected by sensitive people or something. Who knows? I'm just speculating here. Of course, the the skeptic in me says, ah, hogwash. They're just... You know, everybody writes so many stories every year, and there are common themes. There are only so many ways to sink a ship, you know, and at the time, people doing a transatlantic voyage would be worried about icebergs and worried about there not not being enough lifeboats. So it's not that far-fetched for somebody to write a book about a ship hitting an iceberg and sinking with not enough lifeboats. That's not very much of a stretch at all. You know, that's like if you're going to do a movie about an action star There's going to be certain types of things that are going to be the villains. Like in the 90s, it was hackers, for example. Every villain was a hacker in the 90s or at least had a hacker on their team, right? That was the thing back then. So in this time, the thing was ships being sunk by icebergs. So maybe it's just a coincidence. I don't know. But the fact that it was called the Titan, that's pretty crazy. It's a weird thing. I would like to read this book sometime maybe if I get the chance. I don't know. There are a few other books or literary works about ships sinking that are sort of similar, you know, who knows, who knows what's in, what any of this stuff means. All right. Number eight, the curse. So apparently the Titanic was cursed. The white star line didn't like Christianing their ships as was customary. So of course the ship was cursed somehow because of this, there are sort of a few different variations on this idea. One of them says that the serial number on the ship, if turned upside down, said no Pope. And that was sort of, you know, the 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 ship was built in Ireland where, you know, they were Catholic. So maybe that was something that creeped out the people building it somehow. I don't know. Um, another one was that one of the passengers somehow smuggled a mummy on board <laughs> and that cursed the ship to sink. Um, I don't know. None of these really have much behind them, but on the other hand, Given just the incredible, absurd string of bad luck needed for this ship to sink, 
And I didn't even go over everything, by the way. You could do probably 10 podcasts just on the accident alone. Like there's really that much information there. Um, <laughs> it's really surprising. And if you were to tell me this ship was cursed, I would, agree. okay, sure. Why not? It was cursed. I believe you because it is just an incredible, incredible run of bad luck. Just, I can't think of any other run of bad luck to match this. It's just absolutely incredible. Just how unlucky the Titanic was. Conspiracy number nine, the mystery ships. Supposedly there were possible ships or mystery ships in the area besides the Californian, Witnesses saw ships in the area that did not come to help for various reasons. There are various conspiracies as to why they wouldn't have come to help with the rescue effort. Some of these tie in to other conspiracies that we've already talked about. Um, I don't know. Probably the Californian, as I already mentioned, was visible to people on board the Titanic. So this is probably just what people saw. Now again, it's kind of weird that people on the tight on people on the Californian did see the flares go up, and that does tie into other conspiracies. Like if the if the Californian crew was told to go rescue, they were told only go when you see this particular series of flares or whatever. So who knows? It's anything's possible. But it appears that the the evidence for another ship being in the area appears to be weak. Sorry, I got that kind of tongue-tied on that one. <laughs> um, the Samson is, an, is a ship that was supposed to be in the area illegally hunting seals or something like that. But if you look at where they would have been doing that and when they would have been doing it, it appears that it's not really possible they would have been anywhere in the area. But the, the idea of that one goes that they didn't respond because they were doing something illegal and didn't want to be caught doing something illegal. So that one's doubtful. And there are a whole bunch of these. There's a ton of these ships where people say, oh, this ship was in the area. That ship was the area in the area. It's impossible to really prove or disprove some of these, but it seems kind of doubtful. So, all right, that's kind of what I have for this one. There are actually a surprising number of Titanic conspiracies. And I had actually had a lot of fun going over this one. It was, I, I was kind of like, I put this one on discord or I put this one on the Patreon vote because I was like, well, somebody requested it. And like I said, always say anytime somebody requests it, I will always consider it. If I don't do it as a topic, it's might be because I don't feel like there's a, enough there to do a whole episode, but this one, I was actually surprised at just how much there is on this one as actually happens quite often on this show. When I start looking into something, there is so much there that I don't even know where to begin there. There's just a wealth of information with everything Titanic. You know, it reminds me kind of like Jack the Ripper, where you have a community of people online who are just really, really fascinated by the whole thing. And they're sort of like amateur historians, and they're probably more expert in this topic than actual historians. There's there's just this really passionate community, and there's a wealth of knowledge. If you want to know more about anything Titanic, including the conspiracies involved, check out encyclopediatitanica.org. That's encyclopedia-titanica.org. There's just a ridiculous amount of stuff on this website. Blueprints of the ships, photos, biographies of all of the passengers, who they were, where they came from, where they went, if they survived, if they didn't survive, even some of like what tickets they had, where were they staying, you know, there's a crazy amount of information. There's a discussion forums that are really, really excellent. 
And I didn't get all my information on there, but I was able to see some arguments on there with people who were talking about some of these conspiracies and they would point out certain flaws in the conspiracies. They know they have a great deal of nautical knowledge on these forums. Like these people are, they seem like experts. They know how to like calculate degrees of this arc and that, and they know exactly how far you can see to the horizon and stuff like that. It's, just a wealth of knowledge and the discussions on these boards are really, really valuable. And there's a lot of really knowledgeable people there. So if you're interested in more things, not just conspiracies, but Titanic stuff in general, it's just a really fascinating read. I actually got sidetracked and read a lot of stuff uh, just on the forums in general, like, like just about the signaling of the Morse code stuff. Like I talked earlier about how they had logs where they signaled each other, but it's not clear if they actually saw each other or something, stuff like that. And like they were talking about the model of Morse code signalers of that they would have had. There's discussions about the type of radios they had on board. There's discussions about everything, every minute detail. It's just fascinating to me. And I, I don't know. I'm kind of a nerd. I love that stuff. But <laughs> anyways, that's all the conspiracy stuff I have for you this time. And I strongly suggest checking out that website. All right, and before we get out of here, I just want to mention our Amazon product of the week. All right, so if you want to know more, there are tons of books about the Titanic, both the conspiracy side of things, the history of it. There are picture books. There are all sorts of books, so I'll put a link for that in the description. This is an affiliate link. It uh, helps support the show and doesn't cost you any extra, and there's nobody else here, so I guess I have to sign it off with a... Keep it strange. <laughs> and also, unfortunately, there for our Patreon people, there will be no after hours this week unless you want to hear me incoherently babbling to myself. <laughs> so uh, that's I guess that's about it for this time. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. <laughs>